Hello there, it's Jamila Jamel. Take a deep breath. Let your breath out slowly to the count of six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Do you feel better? Well, on my podcast, I Way, this month we'll be exploring ways to tackle mental health and feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and many more. Listen to I Way wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, welcome to Storytime with Seth Rogen. This week's episode, let's go. So who was that guy getting so much attention from the media this morning? By George? That was John, as in John F. Kennedy Jr. In 1995, JFK Jr. founded George Magazine. Of this extraordinary magazine. George George looks red hot. The first cover of the magazine featured supermodel Cindy Crawford dressed up kind of like a sexy George Washington, which to this day stirs some very complicated feelings in me. George was kind of like a Rolling Stone magazine for the politically interested. Kind of like a cool political magazine at a time when politics themselves were kind of cool. And its editor was JFK Jr., who was a rising socialite gaining national media attention of his own. What it won't have is gossip about John Jr. I was working there the summer he did the nude cover. This is Franklin Leonard. He founded The Blacklist. This was the summer after my freshman year of college. I am from West Central Georgia. This is the first summer I spent in New York City. I'm 18 years old, and the world just seemed insane to me. JFK Jr. like literally walking around the office and like I've seen that guy on TV. The editors of the magazine are like the cool kids in New York because they work at George Magazine. And it was cool as like even I remember like the cover with Howard Stern standing there with a chainsaw and I was like this is a cool magazine. (laughs) JFK Jr. took a liking to Franklin who was then a summer intern. All the things that you heard about him were true. He was super charismatic. He treated us really well. He acknowledged that we existed. When Franklin brought up post-graduation plans, JFK Jr. offered Franklin a job. He was like, hey, come work for me. Come work for me after you graduate Harvard. That was the plan. But you know what they say about plans. A dark day for America. That family truly is cursed. Story time. Story time, yeah. Franklin Leonard is a fixture in Hollywood as I know it. He created something called the Blacklist, which uh, started as just a list of people in town's favorite unproduced screenplays and has become a list of who the next generation of up-and-coming filmmakers are. But the Blacklist is not what Franklin wanted to talk to me about. He actually wanted to talk to me about a very personal, informative thing that happened to him the summer before his senior year at Harvard. A story that shows over the course of one day, everything you think your life is going to be can be changed forever. Let's go back to the beginning, though. Well, I was actually, I was born in Honolulu, Hawaii. Um, my dad was in the army. I like to think that my family and Barack Obama were like a relatively small group of black people in Hawaii in like 1978, which is, you know, kind of fun. Um, and then we moved to Columbus, Georgia, which is like two hours south of Atlanta on the Alabama border, like deep south. And you, you have a clear memory of, of this? Yeah, I have a clear yeah. memory of like moving back and immediately realizing that I was a weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> 
I was Urkel. Like, let me be very clear. It was what all of my friends and enemies called me. Um, <laughs> it's, it's bad when your friends and enemies find common ground over a way to insult you. <laughs> in, in retrospect, yeah, it, they, they were right. I was like, really into math. I, I was a nerd. I was a big... Into math. <laughs> yeah, I was that kid. Did you have friends? Yeah, I mean, there were other nerds at my high school. Like, my mom used to tell me when I was a kid, just be yourself. Eventually, people will realize how cool you are. And it turns out she was right. I mean, look, credit to my mom. She nailed it. And what pop culture, I'm just curious, like, what pop culture things were you into at this time? I watched every, I watched pretty much every movie that like came out because when, when you don't have much of a social life in high school, you end up going to movies like oh, by I yourself <laughs> on, on, like on a Friday and Saturday night because like there's nothing else going on. The president has asked me to convey to you that he's sending his energy bill to the floor with a call for a 10% reduction. I remember watching the American president in the theater uh, and like looking around and being like, why isn't everybody else like applauding about this ACLU speech? Do you think there'll ever be a time and you can stand in a room with me and not think of me as the president. <laughs> you were an early Sorkin adopter, too. <laughs> I, clearly, clearly. I think, it, look, I was just like, oh, my God, someone else is sort of not down with the Deep South? This yeah. is amazing. <laughs> but Franklin was not long for the Deep South. It was time for Urkel to go where an Urkel will thrive. A place where Urkels can frolic free. Urkeling. Snorting, laughing, falling, asking if they did that. So I'm a big nerd in high school. That gets me into Harvard, right? Nice. I went to college thinking that I was going to be a biomedical engineer. Okay. And very quickly, my freshman year of college, I like go into that like first math class at Harvard yeah. where like all the guys who were really into math are in that class. Yeah. And I looked around and had this realization that, like, maybe being good at math in Georgia is very different than being good at math at Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> right? Being good at math in Georgia, like, you win some math contests, whatever. Like, being good at math at Harvard is, like, some straight-up, beautiful mind. I'm going to change mathematics and win a Fields Prize in the next 20 years. I have a healthy self-image, but that's not me. <laughs> I had a similar thing when I was that. I did stand-up comedy in Vancouver. Yeah. And then when I was 18, I was doing stand-up comedy in, in Los Angeles. And I was like, oh, these are very different things. <laughs> I, I sort of made a hard right turn towards like politics. I majored in a degree called social studies. It's basically social and political theory. And that's what brought him to New York, to that internship with JFK Jr. Politics isn't dry. It isn't dull, so why should a magazine that covers it be? Franklin does the internship, goes back to Harvard. He still has three more years of school, and he needs to write his thesis on something. So he chooses something nice and simple. Jazz as political resistance in South Africa during apartheid. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right? Dope subject. Like, yeah. absolutely fascinating. Like, you get to listen to jazz music as, like, yeah. work. Um, and I could go to South Africa, which is a place I'd always wanted to go. Jazz music had long been used as a political tool against the institution of racial segregation known as apartheid. Musicians like Yuma Sakela were as widely known for their activism as they were for their music in the 60s. When the apartheid government banned gatherings of over 10 people, many South African jazz musicians went into political exile for decades. They didn't return 
return until near apartheid's end in the 80s and 90s, and homecoming concerts then became part of the rallying cry for democratic leadership under the African National Congress, also known as the ANC, the party of South Africa's first fairly elected black president, Nelson Mandela. Out of the experience of an extraordinary human disaster that lasted too long must produce an actual South African reality that will reinforce humanity's belief in justice. This was like Mandela's last year as president. Franklin had to get to South Africa stat. You know the Let's Go Travel Guide series? Uh-huh. So that it, it was, I don't know if it still is, it used to be written by Harvard students. Oh, wow. They give you the old guide, you go check that, you look for new cool stuff, and you add new information, and they wow. publish it next year. <laughs> which is like a pretty remarkable, like, That's fucking great, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, great. I'm going to do Let's Go South Africa. I'm going to drive around the country for, for, you know, two months while the country's in transition between Mandela and Becky. And then that will cover my plane ticket so I can yeah. do research on this thesis. Kind of a last hurrah before his senior year. One of the last things I did before I left the U.S. for South Africa was have lunch with John, and he had offered me a job at George Magazine. And, and what I actually probably took for granted at the time is that was literally my first solo international trip. Yeah. I definitely had never, like, gotten on a plane and, like, flown to another country and been by myself for an extended period of time. Yeah. Which is why I now understand why my parents were like, so you're going to go to South Africa for three months by yourself. Um, yeah. You didn't entirely know how to feel about this. It's not like there were cell phones that I could, like, check in with them. They were just kind of trusting that I would call once a week to let them know I was alive. And is your, is your accommodations, like, where you're staying? Hostels. Uh, hostels okay, all just hostels. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all hostels. And, and fortunately, South Africa at this point, there are tons of hostels everywhere. Tourism yeah. is actually going pretty well in 99. All of this comes back, by the way. <laughs> I rent a car, and now I'm driving around South Africa. So every day, you know, bigger cities, I'd stay two or three days, but I'm every day driving to a new place. What I discovered very quickly was is that there's not a lot of primary research to be done for an undergraduate on jazz's political resistance during apartheid. A lot of the jazz musicians got out because they had to. You couldn't go to a library and like solve this. This was going to require, say, a lot more sort of like, you know, actually being in the community and talking yeah. to people and earning trust and like, hey, tell me about your grandparent. You know, yeah. or like, tell me about your story. And there was no way that I, as this like interloping like kid from Harvard, was going to be able to do that sort yeah. of by parachuting in and then like bouncing from town to town writing this travel guide. I'm proud of the fact that I realized that very quickly. A little disappointed that it, I didn't clock it before then. Right? <laughs> it was an ambitious thesis, I would say. <laughs> it was ambitious. And, and by the way, if anybody has written that book, I would love to read it. That thesis was never going to work, but I was like on my like, you know, walkabout, right? I was going to see the world and do it on my own and, and figure out what I wanted from my life. So we're now like mid-July. I'm down to the coast and I sort of choose, I think it was Port Elizabeth as the town that I was going to use as my like sort of point of departure. And I was going to sort of drive like an hour and a half inland to all of these sort of inland 
parks and like towns that I didn't necessarily want to like spend the night in. Um, but I had to cover them for the, the travel guide. I think my agenda for the day was go to the Mountain Zebra National Park, drive around, check out the mountain zebras and the like facilities at the Mountain Zebra National Park, and then rewrite up uh, whatever was in the in the guide for that, and then anything else that was nearby. Yeah. <laughs> Were there mountain zebras? <laughs> I never got to see the mountain zebras. I assume there are mountain zebras there. Maybe you'd see another vehicle every 5 to 15 minutes. Maybe. You know, it's it's the middle of nowhere. I think I wrote to somebody at the time that it felt like I was like driving through the land before time, right? Like if like a dinosaur had like peered over the side of like a, a hill or a mountain, I'd be like, eh, yeah, it makes sense. Okay, Jurassic Parky. Well, Jurassic Parky, I feel like was more tropical. I see, rocky kind of uh, more yeah. rocky, like moonlike. Yeah, like like sort of like yeah. Grand Canyony, yeah. like <laughs> purples and reds and scrub brush and shit. So I'm driving. On a dirt road, I'm listening to Ray Charles. It was the only CD that I had for some reason. I don't know why. Um, and I I don't know if I was going too fast. I don't think that I was going too fast. But I remember hearing, like, a pop. And, like, the back right side of the car, like, pitching up. I remember being like very present in the moment. To be free and explore the unknown, baby. This is not good. car rolled twice. Oh my god. And then the car sort of comes to a stop facing the other direction but still right side up. But like the roof has collapsed on top of me now. And I remember like sitting there and being like I definitely have some sort of injury that's gonna fuck everything. So I'm like grabbing my torso like trying to like feel down my legs like I am literally expecting to like put my hand into like a gaping hole. Right? Or like have, like, have the hand come back covered in blood. And there was like a little bit of blood, but I didn't feel any pain. But I was like conscious enough to be like, that's probably just adrenaline. You're definitely dying. But I was like, I had the presence of mind to like take my seatbelt off. And then the, the, the driver's side window had like popped out. The, the windows like sort of shattered. There's spindly glass in the windowsill. So I like crawl out of the car and I see a little bit of blood. And it's like, it's like the amount of blood that you get from like a heavy paper cut. Okay. But it was still blood. So I'm like, oh, God, where did that come from? And then I'm still like standing there, like trying to figure out if it's like on my head and my torso. Like, where was it from? And then I figured out that there was literally like a cut in the webbing of my hand that I had gotten as I crawled out of the window. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> from the glass. But otherwise, I feel completely fine. And the car is fucked. The car is going nowhere. The car, the, the roof is collapsed. The, I think all four tires have popped off at this point. There's no, like, maybe I can drive it out of here. It, it, it's, I can't get near it because I'm worried that thing's going to blow up. Yeah. Right? It's like that level of destruction. I definitely was like, 
what if no one comes before it gets dark? Like, I think like, that thought occurred to me because I was definitely also like not on a main road anymore. I don't know if there are park rangers. I don't know if anybody else is visiting the Mountain Zebra <laughs> National Park. And again, I think it's important to remember this is 1999. There are no cell phones. Nope. There are no car phones. <laughs> I'm a black guy in <laughs> South Africa in the middle of nowhere with with no way to communicate with anybody and again to be fair to south africa i would have had the same reaction if i had been in the u.s yeah Uh, like this is not specific to south africa though i'm also acutely aware of sort of the the racial history in the country particularly this part of the country right um which is sort of inland from the eastern cape and doesn't have the best reputation for like how it treated members of the anc You see a car on a dirt road, you can see sort of a plume of smoke behind uh-huh. them, like the roadrunner. Yeah. So I see I see that in the distance. And as far as I can tell, like trying to trace where that road goes, yeah. like sort of weaving between where they are and where I am and the direction they're headed on the road, I start to think, okay, they're headed my direction. Assuming they don't turn around, they're eventually going to get to me and there's no way they're, they're going to miss me. Um, and the, this couple pulls up, they think... They have stumbled onto literally just bodies everywhere. They kept asking me, like, is there anybody else in the car? And I was like, no, it's just me. Like, is there anybody else in the car? I'm like, I promise you, it is just me. I'm fine. Eventually, when everybody calmed down, they were like, we saw the car flip. We were certain, certain that there'd be at least one person dead. Holy shit. And I was like, well... Nope, just me. Still here. I think I'm still here. I, I don't know. All of this seems very surreal right now, so maybe yeah. I'm not. Look, the only, and this is this is sad, but I, I'll, I, will, I will attribute it to shock and, and not just being a, a thankless prat, but like, <laughs> I have virtually no memory of them. It was, I remember it was, a man and a, it was a man and a woman. They were definitely white. They were probably in their 40s, but again, in retrospect, I have no idea, but they literally showed up. They made sure I was alive, but eventually... Um, a ambulance showed up. We went back to the main town. Did you just leave the car there? Yeah, I assume they 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 picked it up and demoed it. Like, you know, here I am 22 years later and, and it hasn't come up. So that's yeah, exactly. Good. You're not getting calls from Avis uh, South Africa. Yeah, I'm 100% going to get an email from Avis, like underpaid, unpaid bill. Um, a lot of late fees on this. I mean, exactly. <laughs> um, but so, yeah. And so then... They took me to a hospital just to make sure that I was okay. But, you know, now it's like 6 p.m., 8 p.m. I'm literally in this, like, rural South African hospital. I remember the doctor was was from Cuba. And I remember thinking, like, Cubans like baseball. That's something we can bond over. This is wild. I'm an American. You're Cuban. We're in South Africa. But we're talking about the New York Yankees. This is, uh, this is, this is the world. This is crazy. Eventually, the cops were like, yeah, it's not like there's anything to charge you with. (laughs) Yeah, Um, you crashed. (laughs) You crashed. You're fine. Uh, We can let you go. There was also like having to call my parents. First things first, I'm okay. So then the, the cops found a driver, like a taxi driver in town who would drive me the, like three hours back to like Port Elizabeth. And this is like this point, it's like 2 a.m. And it's like a two and a half, three hour drive. So I remember like sitting in the back of this taxi 
while this like 65, 70 year old South African man, um, you know, just like is listening to like, you know, church radio and like, feel like there was like a full moon. I remember like the moon being very bright and sort of looking across this landscape as we were like coming into Port Elizabeth and being like, how is this my life right now? Like, this is not, I don't know how to process any of this. I get back to the hostel at like 6 a.m. And a bunch of people are like watching the TV in like the living room of this hostel. As the search continues, I want to express our family support and offer our prayers and those of all Americans for John Kennedy Jr., his wife Carolyn, her sister Lauren, and to their fine families. What they're watching is the coverage of JFK Jr. dying in that plane crash. Holy shit. Could have been the Kennedy plane. Suddenly disappeared at just the time and place that plane might have been as it approached Martha's Vineyard last night. A dark day for America. This is unbelievable. That family truly is cursed. Wow. So it was literally just like this. What a, like, oh, now I literally, I'm going to have to figure out my life. Both, both because like this thing that I thought I might do when I graduated, like is no longer on the table, but more specifically, it's like all this shit is really ephemeral. Um, yeah. So I literally spent the rest of the summer, like trying to process that before going to my senior year of college. Well, when did you, so, uh, so that's so, you, <laughs> it's a lot there. So, it's a lot that, there. that is so crazy. So, but in, in South, so what, what do you do next in South Africa? Yeah, so I, I call the folks at Let's Go and be like, yeah, so this happened. Um, I think I maybe had a week or two left of um, Let's Go. And so then I was just taking sort of the like, you know, hostile bus from place to place instead of driving on my own. But you stayed. Yeah, I stayed. Yeah. Wow. Um, but again, it, but it, 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 part of it was like, what am I going to do now? Part yeah. of it was, well, if, if I'm ever going to have an adventure certainly it should continue after surviving the car accident. Yeah. Um, I have to say the fact that you stayed is uh, surprising and impressive to me. Like I really? think a lot of, I think a lot of people would have gone home after that happened. <laughs> yeah, I guess in retrospect, yeah. Like I almost died in a car accident is enough to be like, check, please. I would probably go home. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. I, I actually never thought about it that way, but I, yeah. If, yeah, for me, my reaction was, well, I guess I should do the biggest bungee jump in the world. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> And so I headed down to Cape Town. Because it was like both of my plans, right? Like, I'm not going to be writing for the travel guide anymore. I'm not going to be researching this thesis. I need to figure yeah. out my life. Because I just realized that, like, life ends. And there was this, like, hostel bus that went, like, a hop-on, hop-off bus that took you down the hostels in the Eastern Cape. One of the stops was the largest, at the time, the largest bungee jump in the world. Oh, wow. Which wow. Was, I think it was like a 10-second free fall. It was like 216 That's meters insane. or something insane. Yeah, it was completely nuts. And I remember everybody was like, oh, are you going to do the bungee jump? Are you going to do the bungee jump? And like, to be clear, I'm not a bungee jump person. <laughs> Steve Urkel wouldn't bungee jump. Exactly. <laughs> but I remember thinking like, I mean, I just survived a car accident that probably should have killed me. Yeah. Fuck it. Let's double down. And and so I did this bungee jump. Wow. I remember telling myself, okay, when you jump, everybody jumps and screams because that's like a normal human reaction. Yeah. I'm just gonna, I was like, when you jump, 
Don't scream. Just, you know, enjoy the silence and like enjoy the fall. I don't have a video anymore. That was like a VHS somewhere. But you, what, what you see is you see me jump. And there's like two seconds of silence. And then you hear me just screaming bloody murder. Oh my God. <laughs> As I fall for eight seconds. <laughs> you did your best. <laughs> Some people plan every aspect of their life, chart out a map that they hope to follow to a destination. Others see the world's tallest bungee jump on the side of the road, and they take a leap of faith. Over the course of this one day, Franklin went from being one to the other. And I'm glad he did, because I probably would not know him if he was a scientist. Storytime with Seth Rogen is an Earwolf production. Produced, edited, and sound designed by Richard Parks III. Our executive producer is Frida Perez. Additional production by Josh Richmond, Renee Colvert, Jared O'Connell, and Marina Pais, with special thanks to Amelia Chapelo. Our artwork is by Robin Richeson. The theme music is by Andy Christen's daughter. Make sure to rate and review Storytime with Seth Rogen and follow the podcast on Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Seth Rogen. <laughs>